Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. Okay, just a few quick announcements before we dive into today's conversation, dear listener. As you may have noticed, we now have a weekly email alert published every Friday, which delivers all the very latest Bonner Private Research podcast episodes directly to your inbox. So you don't have to worry about missing the latest installment of your favorite conversations. That'll come along with some regular written commentary from yours truly and some insights from members of the Bonner Private Research team. To sign up for that alert, which is currently free, just head over to the newly revamped website at www.bonnerprivateresearch.com. And while we're at it, please don't forget to share these alerts and our podcasts or forward them along to friends and enemies alike. It takes all sorts to make this world, as I'm sure you've discovered along your own journey. And we're grateful for all the listeners that we can get, faithful and unfaithful alike. You can also now catch us on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. So do be sure to follow us over there, comment, like, share, and what have you. And finally, please feel free to let us know what it is that you like about the show, what you want to hear more of, what you are not so interested in, whether it's gold, crypto, policy, books, wine, travel, what have you. We'd like to hear what you have to say. Kindly send love letters and hate mail to joel at bonaprivateresearch.com. I promise to read each and every one of the letters that comes in, and occasionally we'll feature some right here on the program. Speaking of which, we have a rather lively conversation lined up for you today. Bonner Denning Letter co-author Dan Denning joins us from his mountain bolt hole up in the Colorado Rockies to discuss woke capitalism, governmental gain of function, and the very worrying creep of corporatism in America 2021. It's not a stimulus plan. It's not a build back better plan. Once you dig into the details, it's just a giant transfer of money from the future because it's money we don't have toward powerfully connected political supporters in the present. All that and more in my conversation with Dan up next. I think it's only been like three weeks or maybe a month since you and I spoke for this uh, purpose, for this podcast. But that's enough time uh, in today's today's era where two and two and a quarter trillion dollars can be pledged <laughs> and spent an amount of money which used to take you know years to uh, to flow through the governmental uh, hands now uh, you know gushes forth in in a matter of weeks. Um, first of all, what do you make about the the size of uh, of the budget? I know it's a, I know that jobs plan we're talking about Biden's jobs plan, of course, is supposed to come over the next, you know, be 
eight years or 10 years or whatever it is, but I, we hear from even some Democrats that this isn't anywhere near enough and why can't we spend $10 trillion? Why not just make it, <laughs> the sky's the limit. Why don't we uh, make the pie higher or you know, whatever Mr. Bush said <laughs> at the time? Yeah, well, I think there's one thing going on which is old fashioned and, and not surprising except for the scale, which is it's not a stimulus plan. It's not a build back better plan. Once you dig into the details, it's just a giant transfer of money from the future because it's money we don't have toward powerfully connected political supporters in the present, whether that's geographically in states like Illinois and California and New York, or whether it's philosophically to uh, teachers unions, to um, you know, electric renewable energy industry or to to trade unions that might benefit. And we're not rebuilding the infrastructure for the 21st century. You know, and then and in the 19th century, you know, there was government public-private partnership in rebuilding the, the railroads and the telegraphs and the telegram and electrification and, and the internet interstate highway system. And you know, if you look at the United States competitively on, on that basis, you could make an argument, and others have, like our friend Richard Duncan, with this idea of creditism, that if you're going to borrow money, you might as well borrow trillions of dollars and invest it in capital assets, long-lived capital assets that will pay dividends uh, for, for decades to come. But that's not that's not what we're doing right now. So that's, that's more like from what that the Chinese are doing, but not what the yeah. not what the Americans are doing with the Great Loop. And, yeah. yeah, you know that that that's right. And the, uh, but we we've decided not to do that. We've decided to just give <laughs> money away to to friends. And I'm fine. You know, I'm not I'm not in favor of the Chinese plan either. Like we would have railroads. We do have railroads and roads without having the National Development and Resource Council tell us where to put money. But I think what's interesting from a mo- monetary point of view is that uh, there is emerging this argument that uh, rather than having the Fed exist to capitalize the government, lend to the government, so the government can invest money to make people in government more wealthy or people around government more wealthy, there's now this sort of technocratic (laughs) flanking maneuver by people who are saying, Capital should be directed not towards the ends of the wealthy and powerful, but toward objectives like the energy transition or really toward uh, decarbonization of the economy. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're saying, why don't we just have QE for decarbonization? Why don't we just spend money to change the world so it's one, we stop climate change, and two, we make the world more equitable and fair and sustainable and so that, that hasn't really emerged yet as a manifesto or a clear political rallying call. But I think that's what's happening is that it's a um, it's a some in it's it's out fighting to try and, and control what the purpose of uh, central banking is. And we don't like either. Right, <laughs> we right. don't like central banking <laughs> being used to to make rich and powerful people more powerful. But we don't like it uh, to be used to achieve a political goal. And I. Uh, you know, there's other aspects to it, which we can talk about about uh, later. But, I, you know, that's that's the sort of thing I'm working on for the next issue, because it it plays into a lot of things that are happening with uh, financial markets, with uh, digital assets, mm. with uh, suggested global minimum tax rates, 
with capital controls. You know, <laughs> these are there's certain people who realize, oh, if we don't maintain control of, of the borders and the system, then we lose our power. Right. Uh, so it's an interesting card game right now. It, it almost seems uh, more stealthy when these kind of redistributions are, um, you know, it's, it, it's not, I mean, you can't, it, it's difficult to get massive buy-in if you sell it, if you sell huge um, monetary projects like this, like you said just before, well, we're going to use it to enrich the already rich and already powerful. That's, that doesn't have a lot of political, uh, you know, political clout. But if you say, well, actually, it's going to be used to, and then you couch it in whatever language, you know, it's going to be used to, um, you know, make for a more fair and equitable society or some squishy word, you know, it's, we're, we're going to use it to preserve our democracy or, uh, I don't know, win the future or, you know, any of these other like totally ridiculous rhetorical tools, then then I, I guess people who, you know, have better things to do than worry about politics, they've got lawns to mow and hair to cut and lawyering and doctoring to to do, they kind of hear that and, you know, that maybe they think, well, at least, uh, you know, there's some responsible people in charge and they've got the winning the future, uh, you know, as one of their main goals. So that sounds pretty good and I'll just get back to the surgery or whatever their important thing is. It almost seems like it, it's, it's a, a stealthier and more insidious, uh, you know, means to the same end effectively. Well, yeah, I think that's right, and I think it it um, it it's an appeal to feeling, you know, as a rhetorical device, and uh, feeling people feel strongly about things they might not totally understand rationally. So you look around and you think, "Wow, this is it does feel like something's wrong," but if you can't quite put your finger on it then when someone comes around and says, yeah, you know, you're right. Something's wrong. We, we should do something about it. We're going to do something about it. We're going to make things more fair or more just than, uh, then you're, you know, you're sympathetic. You're sympathetic to that idea. But, um, but technology also abets that because uh, we don't really, we don't really know anything about anything in general. Right. You know, so, <laughs> and now we've, we've had this really, you, Dan. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we have this real narrowing of uh, of official gatekeepers of what is received wisdom, right? And so, uh, you know, a good example might be, well, it'd be somewhat controversial, but you may have seen that interview that Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis had done a press conference about the distribution of the COVID nineteen vaccines in Florida, mm -hmm. and sixty Minutes had done a story on it, and they had edited his answers in um in a in a very unusual way. I won't accuse them of journalistic fraud, but, um, but when you watch the entire clip, uh, it's a lot different than the, the story they presented. And people are outraged as if that hasn't been happening every single day, every single day, every single, single week, week exactly. every single year for the last <laughs> five decades, you know, yeah. this manufacturing <clears throat> of consent or this, this structure of feeling, to use a sort of philosophical term, uh, so I think people understand. Oh crap! Maybe, maybe, maybe we're being had <laughs> here. Or, or, I, I'm um, going to journalistically edit that out uh, after the yeah, post-production. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think. Uh, but in, in the meantime, uh, there's the reality 
of leverage and liquidity in the stock market. Mm-hmm. And that just continues, you know, the S&P is up almost 10% this year. Gold is down almost 10%. I don't even know what Bitcoin's done this year. I've stopped counting right <laughs> uh, each each day. I don't even follow it. It's so volatile, but, but run, I, run I think people look at that and well, they're trying to think the same thing is, is well, is the story we see on CNBC and the story that the indexes purport to tell us, is that an edited biased version of what's really going on in the economy or is that the real economy? Right. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good point. I mean, it's, it's difficult to get, and it's difficult to get straight answers even from, you know, very top officials. I mean, go all the way to the top and there was that story. Um, I think it was, it would have been earlier this week or late last week, but it continues to this day still more or less unedited. They may have had to walk it back now, but where uh, both Biden and then his, I guess it's his transport czar, uh, Pete Buttigieg, both made the claim that this Jobs and Infrastructure Act, let's call it, um, was going to create 19 million jobs over the next, you know, however many years. Uh, this according to Moody's Analytics. And then it was, you know, discovered in the the fine print that Moody's Analytics said, well, we had already projected that that the con- that the economy without this two and a quarter trillion dollar you know spending bonanza would have produced something like sixteen point three million jobs, as if they have any idea of the precision of how many jobs are going to be created eight years from now in the first place. But that rapidly reduces that nineteen million dollar that nineteen million job claim down to two point three or two point seven million jobs, which is. You know that's a that's not a rounding error. Uh, I did the math just before our call, and it means that if you divide 2.25 trillion by 19 million jobs, you get about 118 thousand dollars that government will pay per job, which already sounds like a massive ripoff and something that the that the market could do for a fraction of of that price. But if you divide 2.7 or the uh, 2.7 to $5 trillion by 2.7 million jobs, it comes out at about $833,000 per job created, which is a, you know, I mean, that, that's obviously, uh, you know, again, not a rounding error, but just to go back to the point about, you know, what's real and, and what is just manufactured for mass consumption. I mean, we've, we don't think that we can trust the press or we at least approach it with a leery eye, but I think most people, maybe until the last few years have, you know, listened to the president of their country and said, well, at least the guy's going to give me, you know, some just reliable numbers, if they, even if he's making an argument that's, you know, to, to the left or to the right. But um, that doesn't seem to be the case now at all. It's just truth is, is whatever you, you know, you have a truth, I have a truth, and the president of the United States has a truth that's independent of both. Well, and, and it's, I think it's even worse than that is that, that these, uh, that, and this is a bipartisan phenomena from career politicians who are no longer capable of understanding the truth. And they believe because they are lifetime inhabitants of a system that the government policy and fiscal policy and monetary policy are what is responsible for the creation of wealth. And so that if they just pick the right projects, get the right policy goals, direct capital in the right ways, structure the incentives, whether they're punitive versus taxes uh, or, or um, rewarding versus tax credits, then in some way they, they will create jobs or create prosperity. And you know, from a blunt force um, sort of 
perspective, if you spend money, then you will consume resources or employ people, and that will result in something being built. Um, but as we know, uh, why that money is borrowed and what it gets spent on, the government almost, well, not almost always, but at a macro level, um, is, a, is a poor allocator of resources. I think what they've decided to do now is to say, well, we're not going to even, we're not allocating existing resources. We're borrowing <laughs> uh, at an infinite level resources from the future because it'll, be- it'll be better for the future if we do these things now, if mm-hmm. we invest this money. So if the, they can pay it back because they'll have a better economy that's, that, that not necessarily pays them more money in terms of income per capita, but their quality of life will be higher because we have improved equity yeah, in plus society. Plus, plus, we don't have to ask the future conveniently enough because they're not here yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, it's an interesting you know, you could have it both ways because you could say we, we, we're choosing to speak for the future because they can't speak for themselves. Mm. Um, but because they can't speak for themselves, we don't really know what they'd say. So we're just going to assume that they're doing the right <laughs> thing for them. Coincidentally, it, ha- it happens to improve things for us. So rather than living within our means, which is a quaint 19th century idea of scarcity, we're going to redefine money so that, uh, so that there's no object to pursuing goals, which are more important than uh, profit and loss and which can't be measured by the free market system because we don't know what the current uh, futures, like what's the, you know, what's the June contract on equity and social justice? Is it up or down? (laughs) We don't know. So by markets and people based on money and power and profit, they should be made based on uh, values that are higher than prices. Yes. Is one way to put it. Yeah. I think that's uh... Was it, uh, was it Oscar Wilde who said that, that a cynic is a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing? I think the corollary to that would have to be a romantic, uh, I've said before, would be the man who knew the value of everything or appreciated the value of everything and was not aware of any prices. Um, but it, it is interesting when you talk about the future like that because, uh, you know, not only do we not have to ask them or we can, we can affect to be speaking on their behalf in their best interest although they do coincide with our own interests or at least the interests of the political elite. But, um, but yeah, we're, we're misallocating uh, assets or, or capital on behalf of people who can't speak for themselves, which seems like, <laughs> it seems like a particularly egregious uh, undertaking. And it's not to say that, I mean, you could make the same argument from a free market case to say, you know, the, the free market could build things for the future with the future in mind. We don't have to, you know, we don't have to borrow money off, off people who haven't yet earned it in order to do that. We could, we could set up roads and schools and things like that without having to, uh, you know, without having to, to go into debt um, against people who, you know, have no say in the matter uh, in order to get that stuff done. But uh, I'm interested in a, one particular story of this last week and your, your take on it. Speaking of, I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to ignore, but um, speaking of the political bleeding into the economic, we have now major private American corporations, um, you know, ranging from Coca-Cola to Delta to the MLB and whatever that are, that are kind of embroiled now in this, um, I guess, this political kind of malaise with regards to the Georgia 
uh, Georgia just passed its, um, you know, some kind of some kind of voting act, and everybody can have their own opinion on that, and that's kind of fine. But I'm specifically asking what you think um, the repercussions of corporate America taking a larger and larger political stance, or you know, and and uh, you know, the president of the United States wading in on the other side and offering either sticks or carrots to companies that do or do not toe the line. I mean, that seems that seems awfully close to. I don't know what you would call it, but kind of a, a almost a kind of new fascism where, you know, the, the, the dictator says, no, no, you aeronautical company and you entertainment company and you, uh, you know, beverage provider, you will be doing this. Otherwise, these are the consequences. Uh, you, you work for the Volk. What do you think? Yeah, it's uh, so I don't I didn't pay much attention to the particularities of the law. And you know, obviously, there's a there's a large uh, reservoir of historical feeling about um, measures that you know look look okay, but are designed to suppress voters or basically to keep black people from voting. So, you know, in that context, it's probably important to remember that the civil rights movement wasn't that long ago, uh, and so if people are are wary of of backdoor efforts to suppress votes, that's fine. On the other hand. Um, you know, there's a whole other argument about uh, why it's harder to get a learner's permit than it is to vote. You know, mm-hmm. there's <laughs> voter ID laws, uh, but I, you know, that to me, that's there's a whole separate issue, uh, and yeah. I don't think that's the real issue here. And, and it's yeah, also the, not the question you asked. The law aside, I mean, yeah, they, because you're, you're totally right. That gets very sticky very quickly. But just just assuming that there is a political realm and, you know, debates happen there and it gets messy and people's feelings get hurt and, and whatever, assuming that that is still going to be the case for a while, I'm talking about, you know, the kind of enmeshing of corporate interests and political interests, you know, the kind of, um, you know, corporations being held hostage essentially to ideology uh, in some places. I think you're right. I, I think what's interesting to me is that normally uh, well, normally, prior to this this uh, era of woke capitalism, co- corporations would would do what was either best for business, and what, what was best for business or best for shareholders was well, this is going to make or lose us money. So they don't take principled stands; they take stands that are based on the bottom line. I think what's interesting about this, because I don't think that's the case here. I don't think it's going to hurt or help anybody's business to stay, take a stand here. I think what you have now. Um, at the in the corporate world, and you see this in the financial world with the ESG movement, so environmental sustainability governance, that there's a new set of factors by which one should measure the investability of a company, or there's a new set of standards by which companies should be governed by not just shareholders but by stakeholders, and that those are not uh, black and white numbers. They're not profit and loss. They're more than that. They're values, and so what you have now is you have an official set of values that uh, have been, I think, defined in the uh, progressive academic world through uh, what we call woke ideology or critical race theory or some confluence of all these ideas about inequality and race and government and power. And now there's a lot of people who are working in corporate America who went to business school or graduated from a university or college in which they learned or were told or taught that those were equal, if not more important, than uh, net profit or you know debt to equity ratios or any of the other you know bland, dry, 
previous metrics for whether a business was was doing well. So they're infiltrating the board level. They're infiltrating the shareholder registry. They're in the financial press. They're on Wall Street. They're in Washington. And now what you have is a unanimity that there can only be one view. And it's the, it's it starts as a political view based on certain values of justice and race, which are extremely divisive, it turns out. Uh, but it is now in sports and in, uh, in medicine and in education and in religion and entertainment and in finance and in media, there is the party view. And, it, and I'm not talking about the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. I think it's the party view is there is an orthodox view. And if you don't hold it, it, it we, it's not enough to disagree. It is, it's, a, it's a binary thing now that, that there's us and them. And if you don't agree, you're the enemy. And uh, to your point, uh, anytime you see an alliance of large corporate interests with the government uh, toward any particular policy, um, that collaboration is called by political economists either corporatism, where the corporations enforce the political ideology, but they still exist as a legal entity and they're still allowed to make money, or we call it fascism. And, uh, you know, Americans don't have any experience with that except for fighting it in World War II. But, but now, you have, now you have people who, for the last four years, have been calling everyone they disagreed with a Nazi who are <laughs> completely, with no sense of self-awareness, embracing or, or the same death. kind of alliance between large institutional power structures that allowed Nazism to, uh, to flourish. And I think the even worse example that I saw was that uh, IBM had said that it was in conversation with nearly all 50 states in the United States to help roll out technology for contact tracing tied with vaccination status uh, on the basis of, of some sort of vaccine passport for sporting events, for travel, for whatever. And you know how many Americans know that IBM's German affiliate helped the Nazis with a punch card system that helped catalog <laughs> wow. and track Jews, you know, Jeez. like, I, and I, I don't, that, that's not a metaphor. That's not an analogy. That's not, mm. uh, gee, wouldn't, you know, that, that, that's not an exaggeration. That's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, that to me is, uh, the ultimate sinister aspect of this corp corporatism and this fascism. Yeah, that's that's incredible. I didn't know that, and I and I like you said, I bet many people don't know that, and and you know that's not hyperbole. Mm -hmm. That's that's you know historical fact to the extent that it exists today. Uh, of course, uh, that it hasn't been yet erased. But it, it it is interesting that you have. I think when you have that alignment um, that we call either fascism or or corporatism or cor cor corporatocracy. Uh, you know, it doesn't really matter whether the chicken or the egg came first. I mean, you could say that, you know, the corporations are doing uh, the, the bidding of the political elites or that there's a kind of regulatory capture scenario that's gone on and they've essentially, you know, the fox has taken over the hen house um, kind of scenario and they're just using the gun in the room, which is the government to enforce what is essentially their will in the first place. But what you do have whenever those two things enmesh like that or those, those two worlds kind of come together uh, and collude against um, 
against the public ultimately um, is you get a weird sense sense of misaligned or unnatural incentives whereby now uh, corporations may be towing the line on you know one or another ideological um, point i.e not a black and white you know um, earnings or or growth or you know any of the kind of hard numbers that uh, corporations used to pay attention to, they might be towing the line on an ideological point because they foresee, as we started the conversation with $2.25 trillion worth of governmental handouts, that they may be on the receiving end of some of that uh, bounty if they play ball. Or if they don't play ball, they might, you know, they might have their subsidies taken away or they might have some, you know, face some increased regulatory pressure, um, look at oil and gas workers or, or what have you, but, but the fallout won't be nothing. Uh, and so, you know, it's a very, it, it's, diff, it's a difficult thing to, to uh, resolve once that confluence becomes enmeshed, it gets super tangled and you can, you can easily see how it goes awry with, yeah, massive corporations starting to roll out track and trace programs around the country because goodness knows state involvement in race and ethnic relations has always ended so well is that no yeah well uh, you know it's it's um it's um it's a grim time to be uh grappling with these issues because they're not theoretical and they're we used to think at least i used to think a few years ago that this was a problem for for later <clears throat> but the pandemic has has accelerated that and it's a problem for now. And I can't remember the phrase they used to describe the research being done at that lab uh, in Wuhan, where it's possible the virus originated. But they were trying to design, oh, gain of function. That's the, the phrase, gain of function. Um, and in some ways, that's the state and big corporations have used the virus as a gain of function opportunity to say, oh, what if we were able to do this? And, uh, enforce mask mandates, lock down people, determine who is and what businesses are and aren't essential, how much money can be spent without the bond market revolting. And, you know, it, it used to be that an, it, an emergency was necessary to justify a rapid expansion of the state's borrowing or its its infringement on civil liberties. And now you have what looks like a permanent emergency, which has enabled a tremendous gain of function, which results in a tr tremendous loss of of liberty for people. And I think in the newsletter, what we're trying to do is, is keep, you know, track that so that people understand what, what's actually going on. And then um, keep our eye on the financial world where, you know, if, if you look at lockdowns and vaccine passports as movement permits or uh, licenses to move physically, then uh, the same thing's going on in the financial world, licenses to move money mm, and that's that's point. why the stuff with the nfts and cryptos and digital assets is interesting is that i think at one level as we've talked about before it's just people trying to make a lot of money really quickly and they're going to convert that money back into us dollars and buy a house but on the other hand um it's probably an emergent property of a system which understands that if you don't move your assets to a place where they are safe you will not be able to move your assets to a place where they, they are safe and they will no longer be safe. And what does safe mean? Does safe mean you can spend it? Does safe mean it preserves the value of your work? Does safe mean that 
you know, it's not going to be taxed away or have negative interest. So, so that's, I think the story that I'm going to be working on for the, for the rest of the year in the newsletter is what does safe mean in a world where uh, the movement of capital and the freedom to do what you want with your money is under attack. Mm, Yeah. Very interesting. And, and does, does safe mean being in something that might not be outlawed at, at, at the state's whim? And, you know, you and I have spoken before, Dan, about down here in Argentina, you can see very, you can see firsthand, uh, you know, the the kind of collective psychological after effects of multiple currency implosions where, you know, people, people keep their money in hard assets. They keep it typically in real estate here or to the extent that they can, they keep it offshore. Uh, typically in Uruguay and in the States, if they can get bank accounts there. But now they keep it in, well, a lot of people keep it in crypto, which is, you know, that's an interesting, what would you call it? Maybe an an extra jurisdictional asset that allows people to kind of keep something beyond the reach, at least for now, uh, as far as we know, um, from from government actors that would, uh, with nefarious intentions, but um, mate, before we we wrap it up uh, for this installment, and and just quickly, uh, how how are you traveling? Uh, speaking of freedom of movement, and uh, how how'd your Easter go? I, were you able to get out a little bit? And um, you know, what's what's on the on the immediate horizon as far as movement of Dan is concerned? <laughs> <laughs> Dan's moving well. Uh, in fact, I have <laughs> <Good to> here. <laughs> I I have two major three major moves planned uh which are really just a personal exercise and uh hiking climbing biking goals so there's a couple of big mountain roads that i try to ride every spring and and fall and uh once the snowpack melts enough usually in may then uh there's two one called old fall river road which is the original uh road over the rockies that that runs through uh, ss park and then the other is trail ridge road which is a paved road and they top off at, I think, 12,500 feet, which is 3,000 meters, just about, maybe a little right. bit over. So it's more of a challenge of uh, breathing, but it also helps when you're not hauling extra five or 10 pounds. So uh, I avoided all the Easter <laughs> chocolate <laughs> and all of the uh, extra Easter goodies to try and um, uh, enforce some discipline. And you know, there's a difference between uh, motivation and uh, dedication, you know. Motivation is that you want something to happen. The dedication is making something happen through good mm-hmm. habits. So I'm trying to support those good habits. But after that, uh, you know, this place that I've been bolt holing for the last year, my lease is up in July, and uh, I have to decide what you know whether I want to whether the benefits of living in a mountain community because I can do those things outweigh the 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 creeping creeping. Uh, well, it's not even nannyism of of neighbors and town councils and county commissioners and governors, but uh, but it's just this this uh, gain of function <laughs> by people <laughs> to tell you what you can and can't do, mm. and uh, it's not it's not oppressive here. You know, I've I've been able to move and get about and do things, so I'm I'm grateful for that and and grateful that everyone in the family is healthy and and safe. But uh, you know, safety just to close it from my point of view. The safe thing to do politically is to go along with what everyone is saying and to not speak up and to not object, not to expose yourself to the anger of your neighbors or the if you run a business to getting delicensed or closed down or arrested by the police. Um, and you now see why 
we had this question so many years when we were growing up, how could the Germans have let that happen? Because it was safer. It was safer yeah. to go along with the Nazis who were, who were, who identified the virus in their culture. That just happened to be a race. So they said, that's the virus. We're going to make you safe from the virus. All these things we're doing are, and so the, who wants to object to that? Because you're going to get a knock on the door at 3 a.m. Uh, and we're not there yet in the United States, although there's plenty of no-knock raids and warrantless surveillance and, you know, civil asset forfeiture. So I hope that we don't get to that point where the next gain of function for the state is to uh, incarcerate political opposition or uh, people who object to the orthodox view. So Remember, our view is to our job is to is to try to find the worst case scenario and help people protect themselves from it. So I hope it doesn't get that bad. But you know that's our beat, and uh, so far so good for me. But uh, we'll see. And how about yourself? Well, man, you I, was, I was yeah, I was going to say I'm uh, I'm looking forward to hopefully visiting you up in uh, up stateside uh, sometime in the next couple of months. We're kind of wrapping things up down here in. Argentina, we, we ordinarily would spend six months on the road uh, every year, but obviously last year was uh, kind of anomalous. So we'll be, we, we were down here. Um, but yeah, I'm, uh, all things permitted, um, we're, we're hoping to get up there and maybe take a couple of road trips across the US and do some fun stuff up there uh, in the next couple of months. But I'll leave it there for our listeners because uh, I feel like you and I could go on talking about Crystal Nacht and the brown shirts for far more far longer than they want to listen to so let's leave it there for episode 20 and we'll catch up with dan again next time thanks mate thanks for listening to this episode of the bonner private research podcast you can find more conversations like this in the members only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com if you would like to contact us please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com we look forward to hearing from you either way Until next week.